الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد مصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Thank you all for joining us MashaAllah now for the seventh installment of Saviors of the Islamic Spirit uh, We'll go over the life of uh, Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali rahmatullahi alayh Yesterday we went over the first part Inshallah Sheikh Saad will uh, give a brief recap and continue forward, inshallah. Without further ado, Sheikh Saad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه والصلاة والسلام على عمام الأنبياء والمرسلين على أشف الأنبياء والمرسلين على أكرم الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Alhamdulillah, um, we started yesterday and I, and I had started off on a tangent yesterday, so we were unable to um, discuss in detail um, all the entire life of Al-Ghazali, but it's okay, we're able to reach a point where we didn't get too far, so we'll start with the recap today. I'm not going to include the lessons in the recap, that will just take too long. Abu Hamad al-Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Ismail al-Ghazali al-Tusi rahmatullahi alayhi Muhammad bin Muhammad al-Tusi al-Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi His life is pretty well known. Most people have read multiple autobiographies of his life. We should note that he was born in an area in which we would consider Iran today. He was born to a family that cared heavily about deen. And he had a brother, an older brother named Ahmad al-Ghazali. And Ahmad al-Ghazali was very, he was a scholar as well. And he was, but he was very, he's a very devout individual. Very sincere, very uh, much engaged in his dhikr, in his worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is later in his life. Um, regardless, uh, Imam al-Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi, he is um, born to parents and his father, uh, who, are, who are very caring to the dean, his father actually passes away when he's quite young. He leaves behind a small sum of wealth for one of his friends who used to be uh, a person of sort of worship and dhikr and, you know, fikr. He leaves his son under his care and he... Um, has that individual used the stipend that he was given to be able to raise up his children on Deen. And so the initial studies were taken care of through that stipend. And they were exposed to some, some local scholars under whom they learned and they studied the chef in, in particular. Some of the historians mentioned that when that sum of money ran out, that they wanted him to, they, he wanted them to continue studying so he put them into some of the madrasa system, the state-run system. And the purpose of that is that, you know, 
they would be able to continue studying, but also have their livelihood provided for because the friend himself was not wealthy. And that goes on for a period of time in Muhammad bin Muhammad, which is Imam al-Ghazali Abu Hamid, he quickly excels through that system. And he eventually moves to Nishapur where he is studying and he later in his early part of his life, he studies under a great scholar named Imam al-Juwaini, Imam al-Haramain. Imam al-Haramain, Imam al-Juwaini, rahmatullahi alayhi, finds that Imam al-Ghazali has a lot of potential. He sees the intelligence, the memory, the capacity to learn and to, um, to be able to um, not only learn, but also understand at a very profound level within Imam al-Ghazali. And soon he, he, he begins to keep him with him almost as an assistant. When Imam al-Haramain uh, passes away, and Imam al-Ghazali is in his late 20s, he's now um, called towards the Nizam al-Din, the Nizam al-Mulk. And he begins to uh, teach in the Nizamiya, the famous university. And within four years, at the age of 32, he's given the position of the head teacher. And this position of the head teacher would have most likely be given to someone in their 50s, 60s, you know, later in their years, who's proven themselves over decades of experience, decades of teaching, decades of uh, work as an accepted individual amongst the community. However, the likes of Imam al-Ghazali had not been seen. So it was almost a no-brainer to put him up to that position. And it wasn't that the Nizam al-Din did so, uh, or the Nizam al-Mulk mulk did so, excuse me. <clears throat> the Nizam al-Mulk uh, did so, uh, but the scholars also accepted this. And you can tell this by the fact that they would all attend his gatherings. And when they would attend his gatherings, they would um, often be so many of them in the gathering that they uh, did not even have room for the regular students to sit therein. I mean, the actual students wouldn't be able to make it in because so many scholars are sitting in the gathering of Imam al-Ghazali, And whatever he studied, he did not only become proficient at it, he mastered it. And then he often wrote about those topics. And then those topics, uh, those books that he wrote would become the most coveted book and the oft-used book within that subject. To the extent that even a subject that he wasn't initially studying philosophy, he studied it, he mastered it, he wrote about it, the philosophers accepted his work, and some of the Muslims were upset that he did this, but then eventually his true intention came clear when he wrote another book um, dispelling the, 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 the foundational beliefs of the, of the philosophers and sort of deconstructing it, and that really set them back quite a bit. Uh, he had uh, great books in fiqh, great books, books in usul. He didn't write many hadith books. That wasn't that wasn't his area, um, and he was on his way to have a very famous and comfortable life, being the head teacher in the state-run madrasa system. However, he begins to, and this is sort of where we left off yesterday. He begins to go through a crisis, and that crisis was that he found that what he was studying wasn't uh, 
in his life. What he was teaching wasn't in his life. In theory, it was there. In practicality, it wasn't there. And because it wasn't there in practicality, it really shook him. And he began to sort of question his own sincerity. And he began to look very, very deep within himself. He was constantly in introspection. And this is the first lesson for today. That no matter what position a person reaches, they should always be in deep reflection, introspection. Umar radiallahu anhu on one occasion called the Muslims forth and he delivered a sermon to them. He called all of them forward and it wasn't during a khutbah time. He just randomly had them gather and he stood up and he addressed them. And he said that when I was younger, I used to herd the animals of my people and I would spend all day with the animals. And when I'd bring them back home, some of the women folk of my community would just pay me with a few dates and I would go home dejected. And so Abdurrahman bin Awf looked at him and said, what are you, and then he got off the pulpit. So he's, he went to him, I mean, you did nothing other than waste our time and embarrass yourself. So Omar turned to him and said, no. When I was, I, I was, today, my nafs told me, look at you, Omar, you are Amir al-Mu'mineen. So Omar said that I wanted to show my nafs that he can't get the better of me and make me think highly of myself. So I stood up and I embarrassed myself in front of the people. Uh, so my nafs understood that, look, you're never going to win. And if you look at that, this is after all this time with the Prophet in Abu Bakr anhu, and as being a min mu'mineen and all this success and victory is granted at, at, at his hands from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he still refuses to stop reflecting on his own state. So your own personal reflection never comes to an end. It never comes to an end. And Imam al-Ghazali, in his position as being the main teacher at the biggest madrasa, did not stop him from looking inward. And actually his contemporaries, if you read some of the things that they mention, they found him they found that he uh, they found him to be a jerk for lack of better words they found him to be someone who um what's the word i'm looking for um just was not uh personable and someone who was just they, they, they didn't enjoy being around him and so i mean they they were around him because by virtue of his knowledge they wanted to benefit from him but it was almost, a, it was a very selfish interaction. They just want to take from him and leave. They don't want to sit there with him because of the type of person that he was. And so he mentions that um, the dubiousness of the senses grew into me to such an extent that I lost all faith in the infallibility of the senses. I then turned to intellect, uh, but found it even more dubious and weaker than the senses. For about two months, my, my skepticism led me to doubt the possibility of any true cognition. Then Allah helped me to retrace my steps. Meaning, he sort of began to try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. He relied on his intuition. That wasn't helping him out. He relied on his senses. Even his senses began to fail him. And what he's trying to figure out was, what's the truth in life? And I mentioned that he searched four branches in particular. 
and he found the first three branches of the philosophers and um, the of what were they? Let me see. Um, the people of the internal, the the Balthines and the philosophers, and then um, uh, that these were, and there was one more that they that they were not uh, the that there's no truth in those branches. And then he looked at the branch of Tazkiyah, of Tasawwuf, of Ilm al-Ihsan, of inner reflection reformation. And he began to find truth in it through the writings of uh, Abu Talib al-Makki and, and, and the great uh, Mutasawwifin. But still, he recognized that this is not enough. It's not enough for me to read about this. There's much, much more. Imam Junaid, Imam Shibli, yes, these, th there's something amazing in these works, theoretically. But there's a whole realm of practice that they engaged in that I need to engage in, which is lesson two. Ilm is not khabar. It's not factoids. It's not to be learned and studied so on Jeopardy we can spit it out and make a lot of money or we can go and now give a talk at some big conference. That's not the purpose of ilm. In fact, the Prophet speaks very strongly against those individuals who gain knowledge to be able to show off or to be able to debate with others. Those types of things will destroy a person. The purpose of ilm is to act. And a lot of students who eventually go to study should have this in mind that you're studying really for yourself in your akhirah. Inshallah, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes khidmah of the deen from you, excellent. But if he doesn't, no problem. Because that ilm is for you in the end. And the, your salvation could be found through that ilm, but that ilm should not be a means for your own destruction. And so how do you avoid it to be a part of your destruction? What we do to avoid this, all of us, what we should be doing is that we should be acting upon our knowledge. And he found that missing in his life. And he found that the theories of the people of the Tasawwuf and Tazkiyah, it wasn't there in his life and he needs to now learn. And so for six months, he would constantly push himself back and forth, back and forth. He would say, that's it. Today, I'm giving this all up. I'm going to go, go out and find these people. And then his nafs would tell him, what are you doing? Allah bless you this position. If you leave, think of all the people who will be left without their main teacher. And so then he went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for six months until finally what happens was that Allah just takes control of the situation. He always has control anyway. And one day when Imam al-Ghazali comes to begin his lecture, he opens his mouth and nothing comes out. No words are able to leave his mouth. And he's embarrassed in front of everyone. And he walks back home. And then the Nidham al-Mulk uh, in the Nidhamiyah, they send physicians to go tend to him. And the physicians do whatever they're able to do. And they recognize that this is not a physical ailment. This is something in your heart, and we can't take care of it. And so Imam al-Zayr recognized that this was the sign from Allah Ta'ala. And he said that he prayed to Allah saying, who answers the wronged one when he cries unto him, and he has made easy for me to sacrifice honor, wealth, and family. So now he looked, where should he go? So he decided he's going to go towards Syria. But the people told him, but he's, he knew if he told people he was going to Syria, that would cause an uproar. So he told the people that he's going to go to Mecca. And he wasn't lying. He had the intention to go for Hajj, which he does go for Hajj. 
So he told the people he was going to go uh, for Mecca for Hajj. And so the people um, found out what he had planned to do. They were against this. And so they said, they began to try to dissuade him. And they were saying that, look, you have such a high position. You're able to spread knowledge. You're able to do all this good. Why would you leave? So some people began to spread rumors about him. So some thought that, you know, it was a sort of some sort of, uh, you know, you know, board versus imam type of thing that, you know, they told something and now he's resigning. Others uh, said that um, others recognized that the government loved him and they don't want to let him go. And so um, they were confused. Why is, why is he leaving the best institution? Anyway, he took his wealth and he gave it away. And he kept a certain amount for his family and he kept a small amount for himself. And then he went to, from Baghdad, where he was teaching, he went to Syria. He stayed there for two years. And in this time, he engaged in a lot of, uh, in a lot of muraqaba, in a lot of fikr. And this is unfortunately something that we miss out on. Nowadays, people don't practice this anymore. People don't sit in silence. People are so busy trying to keep themselves busy and keep themselves going that they don't take advantage of that action of just sitting quietly in reflection. And, and people think, oh, that's not, you know, it's not something. First of all, it, it's, it's, it's it, you know, I actually wrote something about this recently um, that I had to use for whatever. It's being used for a curriculum um, about how these, these mindfulness practices are actually found within the sunnah and, and there it's replete with examples uh, within the within the text. But the idea is that you find these practices there within the sunnah. And why is mindfulness within the sunnah? Do you, do you need something? And so why is mindfulness within the sunnah? The reason mindfulness is in the sunnah is because if a person doesn't have khushu, which is in essence mindfulness, then what a person is going to do is they're going to only live a very uh, bodily type of uh, worship, a very external type of worship. And it'll never be internalized. They'll never be getting the full benefit of it. So he said that I, he engaged himself in a lot of fikr, a lot of reflection, a lot of muraqaba, and a lot of mujahada, a lot of juhd, a lot of self-struggle. And so he said, I practice whatever I learned of the way of the mystics and endeavored to purify my soul and rectify my morals and I occupied myself with Allah's remembrance. And so if you look at how he words it, to rectify my soul and my morals, the salaf is not about floating. It's not about, you know, do you need something? 130. I don't think so. Why? What's up? When are you starting? Oh, yeah, it should be done by then, Michelle. If not, I can go downstairs. Yeah, I'll be good enough. <laughs> Sorry, virtual talks, guys. This is this doesn't happen in Ithaca, that I know of at least. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, um, it's the self is not about you know you know, dressing one way or looking one way or, you know, being in some type of, you know, group, uh, except the sawuf is about a person making sure 
that they take care of one of the sciences of the deen. And what's that science? Of the internal. And what's the manifestation of the internal? In worship, it's in focus. And in practice, it's in your akhlaq, in your character. That's what the sawaf is. That's how a person is able to maintain truth the sawaf. And thus, if a person has not maintained that, then that person has lost out, really, in one of the ways by which they're able to grow closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through interacting with people by honoring them and having good etiquette with them. And now if you look at some of the things they mentioned, I want to spend some time on this. It's not at the self dars, but um, you know, my habit, I'll be open. My habit the last 10 days of Ramadan at the cup is I try to eat very little. Those of you who've been with me, you know what my plan is. So I started that again this year. And after the third day, and it was going very well. I was actually enjoying it quite a bit. I thought that this year, for different reasons that we don't need to get into, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just eat normally. And there's some reasons behind it. Um, and so I did that for the past two days. And I really wanted to see the change in worship. And you can actually see very clearly the lethargy and the laziness that seeps in as well as the way you interact with people, it changes quite a bit. So from t- actually from tonight, I'm, uh, I just drink water now. I'm like not going to eat anything. I tell myself that for the rest of Ramadan, I'm, I'm going to go back to my earlier plan. And if you want to see the benefit of change, there are two wings for this bird of the self to fly. There's the wing of dhikr and there's the wing of mujahada. These two things have to function together. And listen to what he says. He said, during this period, I engaged in meditation and self-struggle. Meditation is a type of dhikr. Self-struggle is a type of mujahada. It is mujahada. I practiced whatever I learned in the ways of the mystics and endeavored to purify my soul and rectify my morals and occupy myself with Allah's remembrance. That dhikr. And that's how he kept himself balanced. It wasn't just about remembering Allah and then, and then feeding the nafs. Because that doesn't allow proper, it's like a person saying, I'm going to exercise and I'm going to lose, uh, I'm going to exercise again in shape. So now they're exercising, they're burning a lot of calories. And they're saying, because I'm burning calories, what I'll do is I'll eat an extra 1,000 calories a day. A person's going to not gain any benefit. One wing is functioning, the other one is broken. Or a person like, uh, you know, Janwar Shaquille, you know, uh, the person head of Janwar Fitness, he, he calls the people who only run, He's like, he calls them thin, fat people. Okay, he's like, they're thin, but they don't have any muscle. He's like, you have to take, yourself, take care of yourself with both, uh, with both wings properly. And to progress towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam al-Ghazali, from, in the books of Imam Junaid, in the writings of Imam Shibli, in, uh, in Harith al-Muhasabi, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Abu Talib al-Makki, all these great mutasawifun, what did he find in their works? He found that these two things had to be them. This is exactly what he began to apply. And he did so in obscurity. He did so away from the world. And so for a time, I retired to the principal mosque of Damascus. I went into one of the mosque's minarets and remained in seclusion for days on end. And then from Damascus, I went to Jerusalem. There too, I would, I, I would to retire into the dome of the rock. So he kept leaving places and he kept settling himself in a place where no one would know him. And so he kept this life of mujahada. After having visited the tomb of Ibrahim, I felt the desire to go for the Hajj and visit the Prophet's mosque. 
And so now he fulfills his vow. So I embarked on my journey to the Hijaz. After the Hajj was over, I went to my hometown. But I, no, I, I had no longing to visit my family. I took care to spend my time in secluded meditation, purification of the heart, and remembrance of Allah at my house. But events and happenings such as care of the needs of my dependents constantly interfered with securing a perfect state of state and bliss. I was not denied it entirely. However, from time to time, I was favored with illumination, ecstatic transports. I spent 10 years in this manner. What inspirations came to me during this period of meditation cannot be described. But I must say for the benefit of my readers that I came to know that the mystics were most truly godly, their life truly beautiful, their rules of conduct most perfect, and their morality most pure. It would not be possible to bring forth a more perfect and godly person, even if the intellect of the rationalists, the wisdom of the philosophers, and the knowledge of the religious made a combined effort to do so. In their, pact, in, their pra, in their actions and practices, whether overt or secret, the mystics drew inspiration from the Prophet's light, beside which there is no guidance or foundation. Now, there's a lot to be said over here, so I need to sort of do this in a very uh, succinct period of uh, manner, but in a way that's thorough. So what have we learned? We have learned that he's gone into seclusion. We learn in this seclusion that he, he occupied himself with dhikr. He occupied himself with fikr. He occupied himself with muraqabah. In these terms, I'm using them broadly. I'm not saying muraqabah from any particular silsila. I'm saying broadly these terms. He occupied himself with, um, uh, with, 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 with ibadah. And he also did a lot of juhd, a lot of mujahada. And in some of the, you know, you, you have to understand when he said, I left Damascus, I went to Jerusalem and I went to the Dome of the Rock. Why is he making these journeys? Some of the writings, they state that when he was, he was, he, what did he do to occupy his time? Well, he worked as a, as a sweeper, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a custodian within the masjid. And he would clean the masjid. And because the masjid before, unlike today, in some places they're still there today, in some places they're not. They were just sort of large places of gathering and you would have durus take place in there. You'd have classes take place in there. And so one of the students was studying, I believe it was Aqidah, I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but he's asking his teacher a question and the teacher couldn't understand, uh, couldn't answer the question properly. And so when the, the teacher left from the, from the student left from the teacher, Imam al-Ghazali went to the student and he said, you know that question that you had, this is the answer to it. So student begins to say, what, what are you, what, who are you? Do you think you know better than my teacher? And so the teacher sees this ruckus, so he turns back and he asks the student what's going on. And the, and the student says, this, 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 this masjid sweeper, he said that, you know, that question that even you couldn't answer, this is the answer to it. And the teacher said, that is the answer. That's amazing. And then he began to look for him, but he was gone. He would constantly leave before he could be recognized. You know, he, he would be in the masjid and he would hear people saying, you know, like the great Imam al-Ghazali has mentioned, and he had to crush his nafs in that, in that time. And so I'm not saying go for 10 years. That's not what I'm saying away from in seclusion. What I'm, I am saying is that everyone needs some time of seclusion. One, it's sort of uh, embedded within our deen that we have the idhan called and we drop everything and we move away. But two, what we also find is this idea that seclusion has benefits. And I have a book in my library, and I'm not sitting in my library right now. 
but uh, the book is called, I think it's called The Virtues of Seclusion. Um, and, and I was looking through it a few days ago, actually a week or so ago. And uh, especially chapter one is very relevant to our sort of COVID situation. There's so much benefit we can take from seclusion. We're so used to being plugged into the world and we're so used to raising the me or the I that we have lost the benefit of seclusion. Look, what is today? Not today's day. I'm saying, what is today? Today is a time in which if you want to be known, you have to have social media. And then you have to be able to be active in social media. And then you have to be able to not only be known and active in social media, but then sort of get others to plug you as well. And what that does is as strong as the person may be, it brings about the me, the I complex. And Rasulullah, he hated this. And a proof of this is that, and I'm not saying people all use social media for the wrong reasons, but even these terms like influencers, they scare me. Who's influencing you and towards what are they influencing you? All these words like friends and followers, you know, awliya and tabi'een, I, I, I find those things very funny because those are very sacred terms within our tradition, but not in the way that they're misused today, completely misrepresented. But I was saying that people, some people do, do use it for good, but in general, you find that people today, they get so stuck in this. And Rasulullah, a man once came and knocked on his door and the Prophet asked, who is it? And he said, oh, it's me. Rasulullah in the Arabic says, uh, he, what he says, he said, Ana, Ana. He's just like, me, me, me. As if he hated the statement. So Imam al-Ghazali, he had a lot of the me within him. While living in Iraq, while living in Baghdad, excuse me, uh, everyone got to know him and he was so popular and he was so praised and well-known and well-liked that what happens is that people are celebrating him and it's very difficult for him to handle because that does have an effect on you. It effect, has an effect on me. It has effect on all of us. Like if, let's say you're involved in the work of the league. Uh, the founder of the league, of the work of uh, Jamaat, the league, the league of Jamaat, Mon Ilyas, rahmatullahi alayhi, he had to go out and preach quite a bit. And in his preaching, when he was out preaching, that type of interaction had an effect on him. So when he would come back, he would immediately go to the Khanqa and the company of Mon Raipuri, rahmatullahi alayhi, and he would sit there for days on end to purify what was going on inside. Because no one engages in the public except that it comes upon them in some way, shape, or form. The praise heaped upon them or the different you know, spiritual realities out there, it hits a person. So Imam al-Ghazali had taken a big hit over the past so many years. And so now over that past 15 years or whatever in public, he needed to get away from everyone. So he left for a stronger seclusion. We don't have to do that, but we should be in some sense of uh, the word, uh, we should be engaging in some type of seclusion. And this is something all of us should have learned in this COVID time, the benefit of being away from people. In fact, I found it really problematic that everyone, and I know we're on Zoom right now, I'm not calling out th this idea, but you know, everyone, they say, well, you know, we're not meeting friends, so let's have these Zoom chats. Again, no problem. You want to meet friends, you want to keep Siyotul Rahim ties to your families, that's fine. But it's almost that like they were overdoing it. And I felt that that overdoing is because it was almost like they were, it was a drug for people. It's a drug for people. I have to always be around people. The moment you withdrew them, they began to go into withdrawal and they needed something back. Whereas other people, 
have been very comfortable this at the, uh, the, this seclusion. They FaceTime parents and family, and then they went back to themselves. Then they, you know, may have joined one Zoom chat for a little bit just to make sure everyone sees their face, everyone's okay. Then they went back to themselves. They may have sent out an email or text message seeing how people are doing, and they went back to themselves, and they were able to establish balance. This balance, if it's not established, then what's going to happen is that all of the efforts of mujahada and dhikr will be gone. Why? Because a person will always have an excuse not to take part in it. They will not be able to take part in dhikr. Why? Because they'll always be around people. And they'll be a little embarrassed if I take out my masbaha, my tasbih in front of people, then, you know, I might be showing off, etc. Oh, how am I going to eat only one seventh in my stomach when I'm always with, fr when I'm with friends? You know, the, the, the sunnah is actually to eat more in the company of people. That's the other than etiquette. So let me eat more. But if you're always around people, you know, two, three meals every couple of days, then a person's never going to have that's never going to happen. All the reductions of those four things, the Prophet encourages us to reduce. So, just making sure no child woke up one moment. Okay, yeah, I think we're good. So anyway, now he eventually returns back home. And when he comes back home, he, what does he mention? I'm trying to uh, do all these things at home, but I'm unable to. But I still get openings here and there, but it's not that easy. And that's the next thing. The next lesson is when you're with family, the, the inspiration of deen will almost naturally always go down. Forget Imam al-Ghazali. radiallahu anhu said this. When he went back to his family, he saw a decrease in his uh, dini state. That's natural. It's going to happen. But a person doesn't give up because of it. This is why you even need seclusion from family at times. That doesn't mean you go to friends. You go from one company to another company. But you know, when the family is asleep, you get up at that night. And then you pray to Allah and sit in reflection, sit in recitation of Quran and dua and all these things and have that type of seclusion because every person needs time alone. And this is what he's stressing over here. And then he mentions that what he achieved and experienced there, he cannot describe. And this is very much an experiential science. It's a science if a person does not experience it, they'll say, brother, that you're making these things up. But those have experienced that they know these are not made up things. These are realities that are hidden in such a way that you can't express it. Ask a runner, someone who jogs, what it feels to be on a runner's high. They can't explain it. But the fact that they go out in the middle of the rain and run 10 miles, you can tell, okay, there is something there. Ask someone who loves what is it to me that you're in love? Uh, you know, it means that I love someone. You can't explain it. But by virtue of that person getting up at night to check on his or her parents or his or her spouse or his or her children, you see the manifestation of that love. That it's there. And so Imam al-Ghazali began to see and feel things based upon his now what? Uh, these steps that he took. And what's interesting is that when he came back, some people were skeptical. You know, the people are claiming he changed. I don't think so. I think he's the same person. When they came to his company, they saw the etiquette, the adab, the akhlaq, the good character he had with people. They realized this is definitely a changed individual. 
So now Imam al-Ghazali, he could have spent the rest of his life in, sol- uh, in solitary and being uh, a, 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 in seclusion, being away from people and enjoying all of these things. But in order to benefit, he had to come back. And this is part of the reality of life, that you're, you're secluded, you gain that strength and you come back and you what? You benefit people. Now in this time away, he did spend a lot of time also documenting what he experienced. And this is where his magnum opus, Ihya al-Muddin comes into play. That it comes into play. Moment, everyone, I'm just gonna mute myself. Okay, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly turn off my camera and go, go into a different room because my wife has a Qiyam program right now as well. And so I have to make sure that uh, I'm not crossing into her line of speaking and she's not crossing into my line of speaking. I'm just going to just give me two minutes. In the meantime, you could sit and do some reflection, Marakava, right? Let's not make this all information. Let's make this knowledge because it's a little complicated setup. I don't want to destroy anything on my way out. So I'm just going to turn off the camera and mute myself. I'm going to go to a different room. And then I'm going to uh, continue. Normally she does her her, her uh, Qiyam programs in the room. I don't know why she came down today. I think it was the barakah of our gathering. Okay, just give me a minute, inshallah. Are you able to hear me? Is this okay? Yeah. Okay, cool. That's where there's a volume or anything? Uh, speak one more time. Do I have to raise the volume or anything? Uh, no, it sounds fine. Okay, cool. Bismillah. <clears throat> and so he wrote his magnum opus now. He wrote his uh, his celebrated book, Ihya uh, al-Madin, in this uh, seclusion. Sorry, I realize my kids are in the next door too, so they might be loud. Uh, the whole Qiyam stuff going on today. Uh, <clears throat> the novelty of our gatherings has worn off in my family. Now they want their own. Um, and he wrote Ihya al-Muddin there. And what's so beautiful about Ihya al-Muddin is that it's, it's called the revival of the religious sciences. And he actually wrote it for ulama. He wrote it for scholars because he noticed that the scholars were the ones in particular who were sort of failing in this. 
they were unable to, to maintain what they had to do. So he wrote a book, it looks like a fiqh book, aqidah book and a fiqh book, um, but in it he has spiritual principles. And he wrote other books as well, but that was sort of what, uh, inspired within his uh, seclusion. And one of his most powerful books, um, I mean, all of his books are powerful, um, but one that I enjoy quite, quite a bit, it's a book that is called Ayyuh uh, al-Walad, um, Oh My Beloved Student or Oh My Dear Student or Oh My Dear Son, um, where he gives these pieces of advice to a student who wrote to him. And they're all very heavy spiritual advices. Now, when he comes back, he mentions, when I looked around, I found the faith of the people had been shaken owing to the influence of the philosophers, ignorance of the mystics, inertia of the jurists, and the weak and heartless vindication of religion by the theologians. People were losing their conviction, <clears throat> and although some, overborne by philosophy, still fulfilled the religious obligations, they had hardly any conviction of faith left in their hearts. People were going through the motions, but in the hearts, they were empty. And so what he saw about himself, and I'm going to go down uh, further, he said certain people performed the prayers merely as a physical exercise, some to emulate others, and there were others who, were cons who considered religious practice necessary for gaining certain material benefits. This sounds frighteningly close to what we have today. People are praying because everyone else is praying, and they're just sort of copying people's prayers. People are becoming religious for the sake of you know, worldly gain and benefit, and that's a, that's a huge issue today. And then something else that he mentions, these persons saw no harm in giving up these practices and they could find a way to save themselves from the harm which non-performance of religious observance would have entailed. And there are substance of people today who may not continue practicing if they could still not lose out on the notoriety and fame or whatever they were able to garner from this. And he said, I realized I could easily remove their doubts I saw myself, in fact, fully capable of exposing the hollowness and impossibility of their philosophical convictions because of my deep knowledge of the spectrum of sciences. And so what does he do? He takes all of his knowledge and he attaches it with his experience and he goes to work. And what he does then does is he turns to Allah Ta'ala and he beseeches Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala to help him and now he goes and he actually begins to bring such a profound change. And he said, I sought the advice of a few friends who were illuminated and have had spiritual visions. They advised me to give up my seclusion because this was happening while he was in his seclusion. And actually some of his friends, and I'll mention that right here, few of them relayed that dreams some pious persons had seen, which indicated the step I had proposed to take would have far reaching effects to the revival of faith. They hinted that in the fifth century, which is to begin in a month, something remarkable was to happen that would renew the faith. It had been foretold in the hadith that at the beginning of every new century, Allah brings a man, restores and reanimates the faith of people. All these tidings gave me hope and made it easy to set off to Nishapur. And I finally made up my mind to renounce seclusion 499. Anyone who's gone into Etikaf, you want to go back to your family, but at the same time, you know the moment you leave, it's going to be trouble. And so sometimes a person just wishes, I wish I can stay back. And Imam al-Ghazali, he didn't want to go back. He missed his family, but not enough that he had to go back. It just was a feeling there. But his seclusion and his spiritual growth was not a, um, was not a, a vain act, nor was it a selfish act. 
It was a very religious and spiritual act. And what do I mean by that? He didn't do it for his own personal benefit only so people can speak about him. He didn't do it just so he can enjoy himself. He did it so he can have a holistic, complete view of the deen. And now the deen also requires from scholars or people of service or people of khidmah to go do khidmah. So what this now does is it takes all that he had before, coupled with all that he gains now, and makes him a complete individual. And now he thinks, maybe it is my duty to go back. But he didn't want to go back. So what does he do? He takes shura from those individuals who are around him, and they actually tell him, no, no, you need to go back. In fact, some of our friends who are people of piety, they have mentioned that they have seen in dreams that a per it is time for the mujaddid of this century to come out. And this century's mujaddid will come out this time. And what you're mentioning, this is what this person will do. So he began to think to himself that, okay, you know what? Maybe it is time now. And so against his own want, he goes back. And this is a very big lesson for anyone who wants to advance spiritually to learn. That sometimes you want to do something, but that is not the need of the time. You know, sometimes a person may want to go study deen, but that's not the need. The need of that time might be a person to be engaged in doing khidmah of the parents. Uwais al-Qarni, he wanted to meet the Prophet What could be more spiritual than meeting the Prophet Nothing. But the Prophet had instructed him to do what? Stay back with your mother. That was better for him. Imam al-Ghazali, um, uh, Khalid bin Walid radiallahu anhu, wanted time with Qur'an. But the need of the time was for him to go into the battlefield and to engage in jihad. Although he loved that too, but he had a deep yearning for Quran. He loved Quran. But he went to the battlefield, one, because that was something that, that he held a strong love for as well. But two, that was the need of the time. Um, and there's so many examples like this. And so for all of us, we should not, sometimes shaitan, he utilizes our nafs through a spiritual excuse. A spiritual excuse you know so for example uh, a person has a newborn and if this if this fits you my bad i'm not i'm not trying to call you out that this is just an example i popped in my head with no one attached to it okay but let's say for example we have a newborn baby in the house and it's time for etikaf and then you know your wife's like no, no 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 you can go you can go it's okay i'll manage and you're like okay good great i'm gonna go you know the Sahaba didn't perform i'tikaf every year. Some were more consistent in i'tikaf. The Prophet performed i'tikaf every year. But not all Sahaba did it. Why didn't they always do it? Because sometimes there's something greater for them to do. In the example of Ibn Abbas in Hadith, he's in Masjid Nabawi after the passing of the Prophet. So he's in the spiritual company and sort of the physical company of the Prophet as well, but it's after the Prophet's passing. He's doing i'tikaf. A person comes into the masjid seeking help and assistance. Ibn Abbas gets up and he goes to give him assistance. Later, the man realized, wait, weren't you in etika? He's like, yes, I was. He said, you broke your etika for me. Ibn Abbas expressed that he, he would love to have remained in etika. But he heard the Prophet and he spoke about the virtues of a person who helps another person. So here, what he wanted was not what was needed at that point. 
and to sort of understand that, especially when it comes to uh, different decisions in our lives, you have to sort of present your own personal case to people of, uh, of knowledge and of experience and have them help you out through that. But Imam al-Ghazali, he left. He left that spiritual seclusion. He went out to the people. And when he went back, he, he, he came back. He was sort of asked to begin teaching again. He didn't want to, but he began to teach. But there's a big difference in his teaching. It's mentioned that earlier when he would teach, he did it so he can gain wealth. He can gain honor. His reputation could be padded, etc. However, now when he was teaching, he was reaching their souls. He was before it was just the mind he was reaching. Now he's reaching their souls. He mentions a difference. I know that I've come back to my work of teaching. It would not be, would it, but it would not be correct to call it a resumption of my earlier occupation. There's a world of difference between the two. Before, I would teach the sciences in a way calculated to bring honor, wealth, and position. And by my words and actions, I led my students to that direction. But now I want to teach them the knowledge that helps to renounce wealth and position. Allah is fully aware that this is my intention. My only desire is that my present efforts lead to the purification of my soul and the souls of other people. I do not know whether I will reach my destination or pass away before completing the task. However, I believe and I have an unflinching conviction on account of the knowledge of certitude, which has been given to me that power rests with Allah alone. It is only he who can save one from evil and profanity, and, and profanity does not mean cursing, but profane things, and lead onto the path of sanctity and grace. I did not come here on my own accord. It was Allah who moved me onto this place. I did not begin my work, but Allah caused me to begin it. I beseech that he first cleanse and elevate my soul before he caused me to reform and purify the souls of others. May he reveal unto me the righteousness which I may follow and disclose the evils which I may forsake. And this is, subhanAllah, just, uh, just it's such a statement. This is from his Munqad bin al-Dalal. This is from his, uh, his autobiography. Now, Imam al-Ghazai, rahmatullahi alayhi, he, you know, he, he, he refutes the, the philosophers. Imam al-Ghazai, rahmatullahi alayhi, he, uh, he, he does so much in his life. Uh, those who spoke about the esoteric sciences, he refutes them as well. In the end, Imam al-Ghazai rahmatullahi alayhi spends this time uh, in his own uh, sort of now rectifying him, uh, the people around him and not really with the same popularity as he did before. Uh, I think some of the historians mentioned that he sort of stepped away from that position as well and just taught privately for a period of time as well. And there's a lot of things within the Ihya that's mentioned over here. I'm not going to go into it because this is, these are things that we can read on our own if you have the book. <clears throat> and so a lot of what remains in this chapter are things that, you know, you see some of the people explaining that uh, about how they found Imam al-Ghazali and, uh, and before and after. And I mentioned some things of that as well. So I'm just going to skip over some of this and let's just go to the end. Now, <clears throat> the, the son of Nidhamul Mulk, uh, Fakhrul Mulk, uh, became the sort of the, the, the wazir to the Seljuk prince. Um, he was the one who convinced Imam al-Ghazali to come to Nishapur. And to become the teacher again. But Fakhr al-Mulk within the next year was assassinated. And then Imam al-Ghazali, he left his teaching post. So as I mentioned, he continued and he stopped teaching. He went back to Tus and he started his own small madrasa and spiritual retreat, Zawiyah Khanqa, for the teaching of his local disciples and their religious life. And so in the end, all that he sought, he sort of abandoned it anyway. And he just turned to help people. 
Now, some people are critical, Imam al-Ghazali, that why would you leave this now again? But for him, he wasn't looking at numbers. He was looking at quality over quantity. And so <clears throat> uh, the new prince had asked Imam al-Ghazali to come back. And, uh, and Imam al-Ghazali had no, no issue, no, no, no desire to come back. Uh, he wrote in his letter, I solicited the orders of the caliph in this manner, but they were not granted until Sadr al-Din took it upon himself. The, the wish of the caliph be communicated by him personally. And so um, he pretty much just mentions that um, that was not his interest. And so the rest of his life, he just sort of spent teaching people. And oh, there's one more thing he does. He, there was some weakness. He had not studied hadith as, uh, as soundly or as uh, in, in depth as uh, he did the other sciences. So at the end of his life, he began to study hadith. Um, he uh, covered the works of Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, rahimahumullah, from a hadith scholar, Hafiz Amr bin Abil Hassan al-Rawasi. He got ijazah in it as well. Ibn Asaka records in the last days of his life, Imam Ghazali addressed himself wholeheartedly to the study of hadith. During this period, he preferred the company of religious scholars and studied the Sahih of Bukhari and Muslim, which were deemed to be the most authentic scholars in the Sunnah. And so pretty much he passes away um, um, in, in, in a situation where he is a student. He writes another book on Usul, the Mustasfa, and this is a very famous book, and people are still, uh, they still celebrate today. And Imam Ghazali, uh, his brother, Ahmad al-Ghazali, who's a huge Sufi, uh, he describes, it was a Monday. He got up in the morning, I mean Imam Ghazali, got up in the morning, made his wudu, and performed the Fajr prayer. He then asked me, Ahmad, his brother, to bring him his shroud, his burial shroud. Taking it, he kissed it, and laid it upon his eyes with the words, I submit to the command of my master, then he stretched out his feet in the direction of the Kaaba. And people, by the time people saw him, he had already passed away. And that was his life. And that's how his life comes to an end. Uh, in uh, submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And contentment with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decree. And this is a story of really the last mujaddid that everyone agreed was a mujaddid. After this, you have debate whether they mujaddid or someone else mujaddid in their place. And that's like Imam Zayn Rahmatullahi So we'll close over here. <clears throat> um, someone had asked uh, um, about the Sunday halakas I hold for the boys, the Sunday book club. It's a, it's a boys' book club. I, do, I have been told that some female students join that are the sisters of some of the, brother, the brothers who are in the class, but they're not on the screen with us. So I'm not sure if I'm going to take in females because the, the, the purpose is sort of to teach the, 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 the young boys how to become men. And so it would not necessarily be as relevant to the females. And someone else had a question, how do we know what we are qualified to do khidmah for? Um, you know, I, I find it very beneficial. You know, what, what in madrasa, when you're studying, what they do is they actually, uh, by your third to final year, second to final year, they begin to have you sort of think through what do you want to do? And then they begin to have you sort of see, is this what you're best at, et cetera? And you run it by your teachers and they give you advice. And so I would advise you also do the same thing to go ahead and sort of sit down and see what someone of knowledge, of experience, someone you trust, an elder, parents, et cetera, that, you know, 
is this something that you think for me to be proficient in something I can do to serve the community? And then take some, uh, take, take advice to istikhara. And then bismillah, begin the khidmah, inshallah, if it comes out well. And this is not meant to be a Q&A session. These are just two questions that were posed. And so I thought I would just answer them right now when I had the opportunity. Sorry for the weird way today's class went today uh, with having to move around and having to stop and see if someone wake up and et cetera. But it is what it is. Um, okay. <clears throat> so go ahead, spend, uh, you know, spend a few moments in reflection and I'll let, I'll leave it up to you. What type of reflection you want to engage in. You spoke a little bit about fikr and reflection today. Go ahead, spend a few moments in that. Some of the, I received a request, can we, you know, have like an ittikaf style? I don't know what that means. I don't have any intention to sing a nath or anything. Um, but we will make dua together because it's an odd night. It's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily Laytun uh, Qadr. It might be, may not be. We will make dua together. Um some of you did have your khatam of Quran today. And so, you know, we can, inshallah, make an intention that, you know, we can include this as part of the khatam as well. So, bismillah. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad barak sallam. Rabbil Alameen, Anfusina wa illam taghfir lana wa tarhamna wa makuna lamin khasirin. ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب اللهم اغفر لنا وارحمنا وأنت خير الراحمين لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إنا كنا من الظالمين يا مقلب القلوب ثبت قلوبنا على دينك يا مصرف القلوب صرف قلوبنا على طاعتك يا المؤلف القلوب ألف بيننا وبين قلوبنا لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إنا كنا من الظالمين يا أرحم الراحمين يا أرحم الراحمين يا أرحم الراحمين يا رحمن يا رحيم يا مالك يا قدوس يا سلام يا مؤمن يا مهيمن يا عزيز يا جبار يا متكبر يا خالق يا باري يا مصور يا غفار يا قهار يا وهاب يا رزاق يا فتاح يا عليم يا قابض يا باسط يا خافض يا رافع يا معز يا مذل يا سميع يا بصير يا 
يا حكم يا عدل يا لطيف يا خبير يا حليم يا عظيم يا غفور يا شكور يا علي يا كبير يا حفيظ يا مقيت يا حسيب يا جليل يا كريم يا رقيب يا مجيب يا واسع يا حكيم يا ودود يا مجيد يا باعث يا شهيد يا حق يا وكيل يا قوي يا متين يا ولي يا حميد يا محسي يا مبدي يا معيد يا محيي يا مميت يا حي يا قيوم يا واجد يا ماجد يا واحد يا أحد يا صمد يا قادر يا مقتدر يا مقدم يا مؤخر يا أول يا آخر يا ظاهر يا باطن يا والي يا متعالي يا بر يا تواب يا منتقم يا عفو يا رؤوف يا مالك الملك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام يا مقسط يا جامع يا غني يا مغني يا مانع يا ضار يا نافع يا نور يا هادي يا بديع يا باقي يا وارث يا رشيد يا صبور يا الله you are so great يا الله that you have allowed us يا الله to reach a point in Ramadan يا الله where Many have finished their khatam of Qur'an. Many have finished their tarawih prayer. Many individuals have given sadaqah. Some have sat in i'tikaf. Many have been able to change their lives in ways, Ya Allah, that they did not think was possible without being in the masjid this year. Ya Allah, you are the most merciful, Ya Allah. You are the most giving, Ya Allah. You are so great, Ya Allah. If we were to sit here until the, our lives ended, Ya Allah, praising you, we would never be able to praise you properly, Ya Allah. You are to be praised only how you want to be praised, Ya Allah. You are only as you praise yourself, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, we thank you, Ya Allah, for making us Muslim, Ya Allah. We thank you, Ya Allah, for living in a time, Ya Allah, that though we are distant from the Prophet that we still have desire to follow him, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we thank you, Ya Allah, for letting us gather night after night to remember the people from the Ummah of your Prophet that we believe have pleased you. And we ask, Ya Allah, that you make us amongst those who please you as well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, on this 27th night, another opportunity of Laylatul Qadr comes upon us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, that the, the excitement and happiness of Laylatul Qadr on the 27th night sometimes signals for some people to be the end of Ramadan, Ya Allah, but there's still three or four days left, Ya Allah. Please grant us tawfiq not to give up on this month early, Ya Allah. It'd be foolish, Ya Allah, for us to stop working towards this month, Ya Allah, when so much of this month is left, Ya Allah. Do not let our efforts stop tonight, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we thank you, Ya Allah, for everything you've given us, Ya Allah. We thank you for our parents. We thank you for our friends. We thank you for our families. We thank you for our children. 
We thank you for our spouses. We thank you for our siblings. We thank you for our work. We thank you for our school. We thank you for our homes. We thank you for our clothing. We thank you for all the amenities you provided us. We thank you for our deen, ya Allah. We thank you for our deen. Oh Allah, so much of our lives have been spent being so ungrateful to you, ya Allah. Oh Allah, I don't know how it's possible that we can be so ungrateful for the, to the one who gives us everything, ya Allah. Oh Allah, please change us to make us people who are grateful to you, ya Allah. Oh Allah, normally at any time of the year, when we know we have work the next day, we would not be up at 1.30 in the morning listening to, uh, to lectures about people who served your deen, ya Allah, or standing in prayer or reading Quran or doing whatever else that we do. Oh Allah, there's a power that comes this Ramadan, ya Allah. It could be the absence of shaitan. It could be anything, ya Allah. But oh Allah, in the end, you bestow that power and you allow it to come to fruition, ya Allah. We ask you, Ya Allah, that you make every night, Ya Allah, night of Layat al-Qadr for us, Ya Allah. Make every day for us a day of Ramadan, Ya Allah. Even if it's outside the month, Ya Allah, let us feel like Ramadan, Ya Allah. Let us, Ya Allah, fast, Ya Allah, not because only Ramadan is here, Ya Allah, but also because it's something that makes us grow closer to you and you're pleased with, Ya Allah. Let us compromise our sleep on other nights as well, Ya Allah, outside of this month, Ya Allah, because we know it makes you happy, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we've tried the other avenues to grow closer to, Ya Allah. We've tried to grow closer, Ya Allah, but nothing seems to work. So we ask for your tawfiq and your guidance, Ya Allah, to change us, Ya Allah, so we can begin worshiping you in a way that's pleasing to you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you make us people, Ya Allah, whose akhlaq is good, Ya Allah. Let us have good character, Ya Allah. Let us have good manners, Ya Allah. I know this may not sound to the people as something important that we should be asking for tawfiq for tahajjud and tawfiq for fasting and tawfiq for giving charity. But oh Allah, you know, as the one who knows everything, that your messenger has told us that the people of good akhlaq will enter into paradise, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you grant us good akhlaq, Ya Allah, that you save us from being people who harm one another in our in our in our in our acts, in our words, in our mannerisms, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, to please purify us, Ya Allah, and cure us of all of our spiritual diseases, Ya Allah. Change us, Ya Allah, change us, Ya Allah, change us, Ya Allah. We are so fortunate to be from your Ummah, the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Allah. We make dua and ask that you change us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, there is a young man, Ali Muhsin, around the age of 34. He was admitted to the hospital for heart failure, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you please cure him, Ya Allah. Please cure him, Ya Allah. Grant him full recovery, Ya Allah. Grant him full recovery, Ya Allah. Grant the family ease, Ya Allah, as they're dealing with this difficult time, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that anyone who has any du'as, Ya Allah, that you please accept it from them, Ya Allah. Whether they are mentioned tonight or they're not mentioned tonight, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to you, Ya Allah, and we ask you, Ya Allah, that you show us how to make du'a to you, Ya Allah. Many prayers have gone by where we stood off after the prayer and left without turning to you once, Ya Allah. Give us the feet to sit down and make dua to you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, it seems that we only make dua to you when we need something, Ya Allah, rather when we should be making dua to you when everything is okay, out of gratitude for what you've given us, Ya Allah. 
Oh Allah, please forgive our sins, Ya Allah. Please forgive our ghafla, Ya Allah. Please forgive our, forgive our heedlessness, Ya Allah. Allah, please forgive our shortcomings, Ya Allah. Please forgive everything that we've done wrong, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we come to you with a mountain of sins, Ya Allah. These sins have weighed us down all year long. We come in Ramadan with these sins, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, lighten our load, Ya Allah. Forgive our sins, Ya Allah. Forgive our sins. Oh Allah, without you, Ya Allah, we are lost, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, where is there to turn except back to you, Ya Allah? Oh Allah, where can we turn to accept back to you, Ya Allah? Where can we turn to accept back to you, Ya Allah? You are at tawab Ya Allah. You're the one who turns to us, Ya Allah. Oh, turn to us, Ya Allah, and give us tawfiq to turn to you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if you do not give tawfiq, Ya Allah, and if we die with these sins in our deeds, Ya Allah, we don't know what will happen to us in the hereafter, Ya Allah. Please forgive us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, forgive everyone across the world tonight, Ya Allah. Forgive the non-Muslims by making them Muslim, Ya Allah. Let them become Muslim and then by virtue of that Islam have their sins forgiven, Ya Allah. Forgive the Muslims, Ya Allah, and accept it to Huda, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, how many Ramadans will come and go, Ya Allah, when we still are the same people, Ya Allah. We ask you that you grant us khushu in our prayers, Ya Allah. We thank you, Ya Allah, that you let us pray, Ya Allah. And if we miss prayer, we thank you for letting us make it up, Ya Allah. And if we don't pray, we let us. We thank you that you at least put a thought in our hearts that we should pray. Oh Allah, we want more than just the prayer, Ya Allah. We want a deep relationship in the prayer, Ya Allah. To be able to pray the prayer and feel as if we're standing in front of you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, how many times will we raise our heads from the ground, Ya Allah? And then stand up and wonder what rakah we're in, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, it's embarrassing, Ya Allah, that we don't even know what rakah we're in, or we forget what verse we're on, or we forget we stay what we're supposed to say in, in sajda within ruku, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, this is not the way the prayer was meant to be prayed, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give us the faith to pray the prayer the way you meant it to be, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give us tawfiq, Ya Allah, to be less selfish, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, use us, Ya Allah, to spend on those who are poor and needy, Ya Allah. Remind us, Ya Allah, by putting those thoughts in our heart at the times that we were in need and you sent others to help us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let us use our wealth to do good, Ya Allah. Let us do our wealth to please you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, give us strength, Ya Allah, to spend and not be afraid of poverty, Ya Allah. Give us strength, Ya Allah, to fast and not be afraid of hunger, Ya Allah. Let us give us strength, Ya Allah, to pray at night and not be afraid of fatigue, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to you, Ya Allah, and we ask you, Ya Allah, please make us true slaves of yours, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, the day of judgment quickly approaches, Ya Allah. Our death quickly approaches, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we have nothing to show for ourselves in the day of judgment, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant us sincerity, Ya Allah. Make us sincere, Ya Allah. Make us sincere, Ya Allah.
Allah, what if we come forth in the day of judgment, Ya Allah, and you show us all the good deeds we did, and then you show us that none of them were sincere and accepted, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we're so sorry, Ya Allah, that our deeds are not solely for you, Ya Allah. We're sorry, Ya Allah, that our tears are not for you, our du'as are not for you, our prayers are not for you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we have hope tonight, Ya Allah, based upon who we studied, Ya Allah. And here was a person who was insincere, Ya Allah, by his own words, and you transformed him, Ya Allah. Transform us as well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, it was said about Omar radiallahu anhu that his internal, his private practice was better than his public practice, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, make our private practice better than our public practice, Ya Allah. It's very easy to appear pious when you go to the masjid. It's very difficult to control our tongues around our families, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let us see the gift that they are, Ya Allah, and treat them well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you remove these burdens from us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, the burden of sin, the burden of debt, the burden of disobedience, the burden of whatever burdens that are, we've put upon ourselves, Ya Allah. Please remove them from us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask that you cure those who are sick, Ya Allah. Grant financial relief to those in debt, Ya Allah. Grant ease of thought, Ya Allah, for those who are suffering from any type of grief or depression or anxiety, Ya Allah. Grant strength to those who are afraid, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you give us visions of the Prophet in our dreams, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask you, Allah, that you let us see him in our dreams, Ya Allah. Let us see him in our dreams, Ya Allah. Let us see him in our dreams, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, there's no doubt that we miss the Prophet, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, on the day of judgment, let us be able to drink from his hands the hold of Kothar, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we ask you, Allah, that you please do not make us amongst those who are turned away from him on the day, on the day of judgment, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, our Prophet did not ask anything from us, Ya Allah. He did not ask from us. Oh Allah, that was not his habit, Ya Allah. But one time he did ask. He requested, Do not embarrass me on the day of judgment. Oh Allah, do not let us be a means to embarrass the Prophet on the day of judgment, Ya Allah. Do not let us be an embarrassment for ourselves on the day of judgment, Ya Allah. Do not let us be an embarrassment for our parents in the day of judgment, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to you, Ya Allah. We ask you for your love, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we are so misfortunate, Ya Allah, and unfortunate, Ya Allah, that we have the greatest gift of Islam, and yet we look for happiness in all other capacities and ways of life, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant us the, 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 the pleasure of reading Qur'an, 
the pleasure of prayer, Ya Allah, the pleasure of sajda, Ya Allah, the pleasure of hunger and fasting, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, all this wealth that you gave us, Ya Allah, let us serve the world through it, Ya Allah, let us stop hoarding, Ya Allah. All this knowledge you gave us, Ya Allah, let us spread and propagate truth for people, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we ask that you bless the Prophet with maqam al-Mahmudah, We ask that you surround him with his companions in al-Firdaus, Ya Allah. And though we don't deserve it, Ya Allah, we ask that you put us with him as well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, sometimes we don't question your decree, Ya Allah, but sometimes when we read the hadith of the Sahaba who had difficulty and they would look at the Prophet everything would become easy. Sometimes we wish that we were with him as well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah. We could not be with him in this world, Ya Allah. Let us be with his sunnah regularly in this world, Ya Allah. Let us be with him in the hereafter, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we ask for you, Ya Allah. We ask to find your happiness and your mercy and your pleasure in all that we do, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if we have everything in this world, but we don't have your happiness, we're the greatest of losers, Ya Allah. Accept us, Ya Allah. Forgive us and overlook us. Ya Allah, overlook our sins, Ya Allah. Allahumma innaka afoon, tuhibbul afwa fa'afu anna. Oh Allah, you're the one who loves to erase sin completely. So do so for us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, that you allow us, Ya Allah, to be able to die in a way that's pleasing to you, Ya Allah. Oh Allah. Just recently, the deaths of people within our community, globally within Muslims, has shown us that there's so much work to be done, especially with the people of Pai leaving this world, Ya Allah. Allah, use us for the khidmah of your deen, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, there's so much more to ask, Ya Allah. We ask that whatever we should have asked, you forgive us for not asking, accept it from us, Ya Allah. Whatever we did ask, Ya Allah, that upset you, Ya Allah, forgive us for that as well, Ya Allah. Whatever is halal and tayyib within our hearts, Ya Allah, grant it for us, Ya Allah. Allah, we ask, Ya Allah, that you grant us with the Prophet sought from you, Ya Allah. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala khayri khanqihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Oh Allah, before we lower our hands, we ask that you bless our teachers, our mentors, our mashayikh, our ulama, our elders, our parents, Ya Allah. And we ask, Ya Allah, that those who are suffering across the world, Ya Allah, in their homelessness, in their illness, in their hunger, in their starvation, their thirst. Oh Allah, we ask that you remove it from them, Ya Allah, and grant from them goodness in this world and hereafter. Okay, inshallah, tomorrow night we'll go into the life of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Al Jilani, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.